Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we check back in with a Louisville resident whose home was left uninhabitable due to smoke damage from the Marshall Fire. It's really like a twilight zone. It looks fine. It looks like I could just clean it up and no big deal. And we hear about a foundation working to make charitable giving more equitable for women and girls of color. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Today, we're going to hear about an organization in Colorado that's working to fund girls and women of color, a group that's critically underfunded when it comes to charitable giving, even in an era of unprecedented donations. And we'll continue our series on the Republican River with a look at the history behind its name. But first, we're going to check in with Louisville resident and Marshall Fire survivor Bronwyn Brewer. The home she and her three children lived in was left standing, but it's uninhabitable due to smoke and soot damage. Last month, my colleague Henry Zimmerman spoke with Bronwyn about her family's experience and what navigating insurance and disaster assistance is like when a home becomes unlivable. Today, she joins me to share how recovery is going a month later. Bronwyn, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Erin. I appreciate it. Last time we had you on, it had been about a week since your family's home had been damaged in the Marshall Fire. We're about a month out from that. How are you doing? Well, um, I think, you know, moving through basically the grieving process of, you know, I was in shock for what turned out to be actually at least a few weeks. I mean, crying every day and just trying to get a bearing of what you know, the next steps would be. Um, And I think, you know, based on everyone I've talked to in the similar situations, it's kind of been the same thing um, for them as well, which, you know, of course, is oddly comforting. Um, (laughs) But we're finally starting to see some progress, which is great. I think, you know, even just with getting organized and clarity in what steps we can take. Right. And there is so much to navigate. Um, And I want to talk about how that process is going. When you last spoke with us, uh, you mentioned how even though your home was still standing, it is severely damaged by soot and smoke. You felt unsafe returning to it. Is that still the case? Yeah. You know, Erin, it's it's very peculiar because you go back to the house. um, It's a townhome. And when you go back, it's eerily normal. Like the other than the soot, you know, the smoke has been cleared and, um, you know, there's still soot all over the and, uh, the porch and in the windows and, you know, on some items and things like that. But it's really like a twilight zone. It looks fine. It looks like I could just clean it up and no big deal. Um, and I had tried to start and within an hour I had symptoms starting with burning of my eyes and in the back of my nose, down my throat. I was coughing and this is with an N95 mask on that was provided by the disaster center. I tried to push through and, you know, hour two, I had a terrible headache. So I'm like, that's it. I'm out of here because it's just, if that's, and that was me alone, I don't dare bring my kids back into an environment that's causing 
that kind of physical reaction after such a short amount of time. And that's, again, this is just last week, Erin. This is, so, you know, a few weeks out from the fire, and it's still like that in the homes. Now, have you been able to retrieve any items from your home uh, as you've spent time there? Well, I run my business from home, so it. I was trying to get, um, you know, I have my laptop, um, which, you know, it's been functioning okay. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, this was that the last time I was there, I was wanting to get like my printer and scanner and copier and all of my notes from my business meetings. And um, it just fell on the list of priorities when it was like, you know, my kids are like, hey, can you get, you know, some of their comfort items, like even like a favorite blanket that I knew I could wash, um, you know, well enough, someone said, oh, try, try mouthwash, it'll help get the smoke smell out. I don't know if that's a fireman trick or um, but I don't know. Um, we've tried vinegar and stuff like that. And it seems like it's working, but, you know, again, I worry about like those toxins that like, is that going to be efficient? I hope so. I'm washing them on hot, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah. Some clothes and, um, just little things like that. Otherwise I'm really concerned about what the proper cleaning procedure is. And, And which actually brings me to, you know, I'm finally getting around to these restoration companies coming in for remediation of my personal belongings since I'm a renter. And when it, when they come in and they're talking about what can, you know, oh, well, we can clean this, but we, you know, you still have all these questions. Like, is it clean to where it's safe for the kids? Because really that's my biggest concern. I mean, I certainly don't want to end up with cancer five years down the road, and I sure as heck don't want to risk anything with my children. So, you know, when you look at these VOCs, the, um, you know, these chemical compounds that come out of, you know, burning, you know, plastics and, and the chemicals that are in things like refrigerators and televisions, you know, that already require special disposal without a catastrophe like this, it's scary to think about what's left in the home right now and what, um, you know, just what was carried in the soot and the um, the ash and the, you know, and in the smoke in the air. So, yeah, it seems risky. Now, uh, where are you and your kids staying right now? We are, this is the tough part is because my daughter has asthma, I had no problem going further from Louisville originally. Um, we're down in Lakewood in a hotel and um, it's about 40 minutes to get to their school. So their attendance has been terrible. Quite honestly, it's just with everything going on, trying to do any business meetings to try to keep my business going, you know, just daily maintenance and life and dealing with the trauma. You know, luckily we've all been in counseling, which is helpful, but all of that takes a lot of time. So, and really, quite frankly, that's my priority is making sure that they're doing well and feel safe and secure before we can get to school every day. I was just going to ask, how are they feeling about going to school? Is it um, kind of a, a sense of normalcy for them, something that they're used to, or is it just making it hard to, you know, to be away from you? I think, you know, my youngest, even when she goes to school, she hasn't been wanting to go to aftercare. She's really only made it about one day a week. Plus, we've had these weekly snowstorms, which don't help with commuting 40 minutes north. But um you know, we were able to get some lessons on her Chromebook, which is good because really, even when she was going to school on those days, she's like, well, can you, can you just pick me up early? I don't want to go to aftercare. And she'd say, and ask me questions like, well, what's the hotel made of, you know, is, can, you know, I said, oh, it's like a brick, like, you know, that sort of thing. And she said, well, that can that burn? So she still has concerns about 
my safety and about, you know, really just the family safety and like, well, we're, what if the hotel burns, then where do we go? You know? And so, sorry, I'm getting a little teary. I just thinking about it because it's just for, you know, an eight year old to be worried about that is just heartbreaking. But um, yeah, the older two are, they're okay not going to school <laughs> right now, which is hilarious. But I think, you know, really the main thing is, is that they know that it's, um, you know, it's, it's inevitable that we're going to be getting them back to school. It's just a matter of, you know, we're really trying to figure out, do we need to move? You know, is this something that, you know, there's some communities that are some other people that are renting that they do, they have to remove all of their items in order for the, the remediation or the, you know, the restoration companies to come in and do what they are wanting to do, um, which I'm kind of looking at a similar situation. Like if we have to move a bunch of stuff out, at what point is it worth it to stay when my oldest is having quite a bit of trauma just from when she evacuated and even wanting, not wanting to return to the area, um, which is honestly in large part why she doesn't want to go back to school is because driving past like these leveled neighborhoods is, it's terrifying to her. So what are you thinking about where to live? Are you, it sounds like you're considering moving out of your neighborhood at this point. Yeah, um, we definitely are. Uh, what's hard is that, you know, uh, the Colorado market for rentals or home buying right now is a tough one. So, um, you know, with so many people displaced, um, on top of an already competitive market, it's been incredibly hard. We've been looking at those options and it's just been incredibly hard to even get something. I mean, applications in before there's already 10 applications ahead of you. Um, so, and that's the reality. You know, I see people posting like, hey, still looking for a place to live. And sure enough, I know like there's so many families, so many families that are still stuck in hotels um, without you know, housing that, you know, that just adds to the trauma because it's this limbo, you know, we're just continuing this, this limbo and, and it, it just extends the trauma. So it's unfortunate that there's so many still affected in a similar way. What has it been like to navigate insurance over the last month? I'm wondering, have, have you gotten anywhere? Uh, I think my insurance company has been so far, very easy to cooperate with um, or coordinate with. Um, I'm, I think I, I count myself very lucky in that they've been patient with me because I just tell them, I'm like, you know, look, I'm trying to figure this out, you know, and there's been some things that when I originally with the owners of the property I rent, um, the management company said, well, we put in an air scrubber, we changed out the fire uh, and the smoke detectors. Um, I'm not sure what else we're going to do. And at that point I was like, oh, well that did it for me. We're gonna have to move. But then they came back and said, okay, our insurance people came in and they said, we actually need to do a bunch of you know, remediation, which was very comforting um, knowing that, okay, some proper steps will be taken, hopefully. Um, and just that process itself is, you know, that took a few weeks to even get someone in to look at it. So the length of time kind of figuring out, you know, how to, who, who, who takes the first step then to coordinate the schedules? You know, I've been talking with the property manager about, okay, well, we're ready with this and that scheduled, but I'm still at a point where I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't have any answers as far as when I can get my things out and cleaned. And, and if I do get it out and cleaned, what I can keep, is it going to go back in or am I going to move it? 
completely. So at this point, I guess it's just going to go to a storage unit once clean. I don't know. I don't know where we're going to land. Bronwyn Brewer is a Louisville resident and single mom of three whose home was severely damaged in the Marshall Fire. Bronwyn, thank you so much for talking with me and all the best to you and your family. Thank you so much, Erin. Listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Charitable giving in the United States hit a record high in 2020. The biggest uptick came from foundations, whose philanthropic giving increased by 17%. But according to a national report, these organizations are significantly underfunding one specific group, women and girls of color. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, one Colorado foundation is working to change this. Lauren Young-Castile grew up in Westchester County, just north of New York City. One of her most vivid childhood memories is answering the family's rotary phone. A couple of times, as I recall, someone saying, please hold, um, this is the White House. And I'd yell, Daddy! <laughs> the president's on the phone! Her dad was Whitney Moore Young Jr., a civil rights leader and former executive director of the National Urban League. In the 1960s, he was instrumental in setting an economic agenda. The goal, Castile says, was to overcome many of the public and socially racist policies and practices that created a wealth gap that still persists today. It was about jobs. It was about education. It was about the advancement of Black people in our country. Her father died when she was 17, and before she really had a chance to pick his brain about policy or economics. But Castile remembers her father sitting at the kitchen table opening the mail. One of the envelopes held a check, a big donation to the National Urban League. He'd say, this is black power. This will help to create jobs and freedom. So I also saw institutional philanthropy at work. Five decades later, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Castile is president and CEO of the Women's Foundation of Colorado the only community foundation focused on women and their families. One of their newest initiatives is the Women and Girls of Color Fund. We wanted to serve women statewide to ensure that barriers were broken for women and girls and non-binary people of color who have been the most undervalued and underinvested in nationally. Two years ago, the Ms. Foundation for Women released a study on giving for women and girls of color in the U.S. It found this group only received 0.5 percent of the nearly $67 billion given by foundations in 2017. We need to reinvest and redistribute dollars for us to address the gaps that are inherent within our systems. Last January, the Women and Girls of Color Fund opened its first grant-making cycle to rural organizations led by women, girls, and non-binary people of color executive directors. That was followed up six months later with one for front-range groups. The Advisory Council awarded unrestricted grants of nearly $450,000 to 33 organizations serving all Colorado counties. Ermine Nomir received one of the rural grants, 
I am the founder of, among other things that I do, of a nonprofit called the County Collectives. Established in May of 2020, it works with a diverse group of young adults in rural Weld, Adams, and Boulder counties as they address challenges in their communities, like inspiring youth to create their own nonprofits and doing policy work around affordable housing. That is our young adult advisory board. They advise us as another board, <laughs> a little older board, and say, this is what it is we want to work on. The nonprofit received $11,000 which they've used to host community drive-in movies and discussions and Juneteenth events that drew thousands of people. Nomir has never run a nonprofit before. It's been a challenge, but she's also received other support from the fund. First, it was just like other people who have won the grant. Here's their contact information. Here's what they have going on. So it's a way to like network. Here's some training. Here's some other people you could talk to. My father, one of his quotes was being the voice for the voiceless. Lauren Young Castile's Living Room Coffee Table holds several books written by her father. I have quoted him in speeches, and there are a number of things that I carry forward with me. But Castile also carries the legacy of her late mother, Margaret Buckner Young, who was an educator, author, and racial equity advocate. She outlived her husband by four decades and served on several boards, including New York Life, the Lincoln Center, and Dance Theater of Harlem. My mom showed me as a woman about opportunity. And the opportunities continue to grow at the Women's Foundation of Colorado. The Women and Girls of Color Fund is currently accepting applications for its next round of funding for rural organizations. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. The deadline to apply for the latest rural cycle is February 9th. You can find more details at KUNC.org. Over the last month, we've brought you a series about the Republican River, which begins in northeastern Colorado and flows through Kansas and Nebraska. We've explored how water disappearing from the streams and grounds are affecting farmers in the region, and how a history of interstate lawsuits and well permits got the basin to this point. We've also heard about efforts to conserve more water and get it flowing through again. Here's a question we haven't answered yet. How did the Republican River get its name? KUNC's Adam Reyes explores that question. Apparently, one of Nebraska's Democratic governors in the 1960s would jokingly ask Republican friends whether the Republican River got its name because it's so shallow or so crooked. But the name has nothing to do with the modern political party. They named it Republican, and the band that they were referring to in Pawnee is called Kickahockey. That's Matt Reed, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Pawnee Nation. He's visited parts of the river for archaeological purposes and says early European settlers used to call the Kickahockey band of the Pawnee tribe Republicans because of their democratic style of government. I spoke about the river's name and history with Reed and Longmont-based Pawnee historian Roger Echo Hawk, whose ancestors were Kitkahaki. He says the name is the result of the European thinking about governance philosophy and observing what's happening in Pawnee land during the 1760s, 1770s and saying this looks like a republic. While the name referred to all Kitkahakis, Echo Hawk says the form of governance Europeans observed was limited to one subsect of the Kitkahaki, which chose leaders based on personal achievement rather than hereditary right. But what was the Pawnee name for the river? Echo Hawk isn't 100% sure, as there aren't many written records. But he says it was likely called... The Kiraruta. 
That word has two parts, which are somewhat up to interpretation, he says. The first refers to a body of water. And the second refers to intestines. Echo Hawk says the Pawnee would hunt the large herds of buffalo that roam near the river. They would then wash the butchered intestines and other organs in the nearby stream. You can translate this word in various ways, but I translate it as dirty water river. The word is a joyous one, he says, a reminder of what successful hunts entail. The significance of this river to the Pawnee people goes deeper. I'll let Echo Hawk and Matt Reed take over from here. You know, our origin story talks about us being put on the earth from the stars on the plains. So we've always lived on the plains. The ancestors of the Pawnees ranged to live between what's called the mysterious river and those distant rocks. So the mysterious river today is known as the Missouri River. And those distant rocks are the Rocky Mountains. The Republican River probably holds the greatest number of Pawnee archaeological sites compared to any other drainage. In Pawnee tradition, they were very special places where mystical things happened, where special dreams were given to people and where interactions with the animals gave rise to bodies of esoteric knowledge and ceremonial ways. In Nebraska and Kansas, you get a lot of cultural materials are buried with sediment, you know, over age. And in Colorado, all that stuff's just sitting on the surface. It's fascinating to like be walking along and look down and find a spear point that's probably 10,000 plus years old. It was uh, recognized as a prime hunting area by the Pawnees and by other communities who later invaded Pawnee land and contended with the Pawnees for control of these valuable areas associated with these waterways. There's a place out in western Nebraska called Massacre Canyon that's right on the Republican River. This was where a group of Bonnie hunters and their families uh, were attacked by the Sioux. Coming out onto the plains because they were being pushed out of their homelands originally. The 1840s, every uh, year or two, a large number of Bonnies were slaughtered by the Sioux. And so it became this period of just constant warfare and like fighting over resources. And so we saw the United States as an ally, you know, to protect our resources. Bonnies by the 1860s are caught up in the machinery of two empires, the Sioux Empire and the American Empire. And with the Sioux, it was a matter of uh, surviving against these vast military expeditions that invaded. And in terms of the American engagement with the Pawnees, these were political matters. We left Nebraska in three groups. We first started leaving Nebraska in 1873. Relations with the state officials, the territory of Nebraska, were not going well. American settlers were coming on the Pawnee land and removing valuable timber and resources like that. Less than 20 years later, they decided that we still had too much land, and so we were only allowed to have 160 acres, and then they gave the rest of it to non-Indians. The ones who stayed there, the main part of the Pawnee Nation, they finally sat down and thought to themselves, would life be better in the South? And then eventually, 
the pressure grew and grew and grew so much that we requested to move away from it, to come to Oklahoma? As I see it, we're not helplessly marched at the point of a gun to the South. Instead, this is a wonderful story of we are going to empower ourselves by making our own choices. And that's what the leaders did. There is a great yearning to reestablish connections to the ancient homeland in the Central Plains. In Colorado, some of it's so dry. It's like, I don't even know if you can call that a river anymore. So the Pawnees did not leave great ecological disasters across this landscape from their generations of living there. I don't know how to translate this into meaning today, but that always strikes me. To see something that was so important to our ancestors and then it, it's just dried up, that's kind of crazy. A million questions come to your mind. What did it look like when these animals were migrating through? How did they live when these rivers flooded, and got, you know, got miles across sometimes? Like say, they lived there for so long, there had to be a way to live with it like that rather than changing the river to suit your needs. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that a, a lot of different groups with interests in a resource like the Republican River that we couldn't figure out how to manage it better, probably. Those were historians Matt Reed and Roger Echo Hawk on the Pawnee history of the Republican River Basin. Adam Reyes, KUNC. If you've been following along with our series on the Republican River and want to listen back to a story or see archival photos, GIFs, and data visualizations, you can find them all at KUNC.org slash Republican River. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.